Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Welcome to Forgotten Classics, episode 290. I'm Julie, and I'm sorry it's been a month and a half since the last episode. Where does the time go? Well, in this case, my oldest daughter got married, and that was one good excuse. And then my annual catalog started up, which took all of my time. And so there was the other excuse. Good or not, it's what it was. But in the meantime, I knew that I had all this stuff ready to go. It's been driving me crazy not to get it out there. So we have a variety of things that will be coming for the next few weeks. In fact, at least a couple of months, I'm positive. In fact, what made me force the time to do this introduction is I read a hilarious Nathaniel Hawthorne story last night called Mrs. Bullfrog. It is not an Aesop's fable. It's not really about a bullfrog, but I wanted to read it to you guys, and then I realized it would have to get into a long line. I do want to tell you about a podcast I've been listening to lately called The Noir Factory. It's by Stephen Gomez, who has written a book. I have not looked it up. Again, short on time. But this podcast is really great. It's about maybe 20 minutes long, and he's going to cover everything. There are four episodes. I've listened to all of them. It starts off with the first female detective in America who worked for the Pinkerton Agency, or agents, whichever, went on to Black Bart, an outlaw poet who I'd never heard of, a quick history of the Canine Corps, along with the story of one of the most amazing little pit bulls I've ever heard of, and somewhere in there was Mickey Spillane's story the author. So these are all really well done. There's a little ad in there usually fairly early on, but that's the only one he does. So it's not a big deal. Always entertaining. Definitely give it a listen. Now, what we're going to get is a couple of short stories to get us back in the swing of things. One's by Lord Dunsany, or Dunsany, however you want to say it, that famous fiction author who influenced so many people and we've had one of his stories and I will link to it because he wrote about oh one of those tall tales in taverns sorts of stories he was one of the first people to do that although his was in a gentleman's club one of the Jorgen's stories so as I said I'll link to that because I read one of them this is just a straightforward fantasy story His can be so horrific. They can also be so hilarious. This is a hilarious one. I first came across this story in a book called Tales Before Tolkien, which is one of a series because there was another book called Tales Before Lewis, maybe, or Tales Lewis Read or something. Anyway, I'll put links to all these. And then there was another one, which was stories that influenced H.P. Lovecraft, and that had a whole different title but they're all edited by the same guy and the great thing about them is even if these people weren't reading these particular stories they were all out there influencing everyone so it's really interesting to read all those stories and think about these other famous authors and the things that we know about them so here's a little bit from the introduction to that story in Tales Before Tolkien 
As Douglas A. Anderson tells us in Tales Before Tolkien, The Roots of Modern Fantasy, Lord Dunsany was the master of fantasy short stories. His tales have the true feel of fables, with a modern wit and a truly mellifluent style which makes them endlessly readable. Equally attractive is how Dunsany playfully overturns fairy tale conventions. The one Dunsany collection that we know Tolkien certainly read, The Book of Wonder, is also one of Dunsany's best. Tolkien retained a clear memory of this collection and of the tale from it called Chubu and Shemish. In a letter from 1972, Tolkien admitted that being a cult figure in one's own lifetime was not at all pleasant, but he felt that even the nose of a very modest idol, younger than Chubu and not much older than Shemish, cannot remain entirely untickled by the sweet smell of incense. In 1967, two interviewers quoted Tolkien as saying, When you invent a language, you more or less catch it out of the air. You say boo-hoo, and that means something. Tolkien responded to this quotation by writing, If I attributed meaning to boo-hoo, I should not, in this case, be influenced by the words containing boo in many other European languages, but by a story by Lord Dunsany, read many years ago, about two idols enshrined in the same temple, Chubu and Shemish. If I used Boohoo at all, it would be as the name of some ridiculous, fat, self-important character, mythological or human. Chubu and Shemish first appeared in the December 30, 1911 issue of the Saturday Review and was included in the Book of Wonder, 1912. And then I have a very short Poe story which I recorded originally for Jesse at SFF Audio, and I found it and realized I had never put it up here, I don't think, and I really enjoyed listening to it. So if I enjoyed listening, and I know all the flaws, you might enjoy it too, maybe even more than I did. That's enough nattering on. Let's dive in. Chubu and Shemish by Lord Dunsany. It was the custom on Tuesdays in the temple of Chubu for the priests to enter at evening and chant, There is none but Chubu. And all the people rejoiced and cried out, There is none but Chubu. And honey was offered to Chubu and maize and fat. Thus was he magnified. Chupu was an idol of some antiquity, as may be seen from the color of the wood. He had been carved out of mahogany, and after he was carved, he had been polished. Then they had set him up on the diorite pedestal with the brazier in front of it for burning spices and the flat gold plates for fat. Thus they worshipped Chubu. He must have been there for over a hundred years when one day the priests came in with another idol into the temple of Chubu and set it up on a pedestal near Chubu's and sang, There is also Shemish. And all the people rejoiced and cried out, There is also Shemish. Shemish was palpably a modern idol, and although the wood was stained with a dark red dye, you could see that he had only just been carved. And honey was offered to Shemish as well as Chubu, and also maize and fat. The fury of Chubu knew no time limit. 
He was furious all that night, and the next day he was furious still. The situation called for immediate miracles. To devastate the city with a pestilence and kill all his priests was scarcely within his power. Therefore, he wisely concentrated such divine powers as he had in commanding a little earthquake. Thus, thought Chubu, will I reassert myself as the only god, and men shall spit upon Shemesh. Chubu willed it and willed it, and still no earthquake came, when suddenly he was aware that the hated Shemesh was daring to attempt a miracle too. He ceased to busy himself about the earthquake and listened, or shall I say felt, for what Shemesh was thinking, for gods are aware of what passes in the mind by a sense that is other than any of our five. Shemesh was trying to make an earthquake too. The new god's motive was probably to assert himself. I doubt if Chubu understood or cared for his motive. It was sufficient for an idol already aflame with jealousy that his detestable rival was on the verge of a miracle. All the power of Chubu veered round at once and set dead against an earthquake, even a little one. It was thus in the temple of Chubu for some time, and then no earthquake came. To be a god and to fail to achieve a miracle is a despairing sensation. It is as though among men one should determine upon a hearty sneeze and as though no sneeze should come. It is as though one should try to swim in heavy boots or remember a name that is utterly forgotten. All these pains were Shemish's. And upon Tuesday the priests came in and the people and they did worship Chubu and offered fat to him saying, O Chubu who made everything. And then the priests sang, There is also Shemish. And again the people rejoiced and cried out, There is also Shemish. And Chubu was put to shame and spake not for three days. Now, there were holy birds in the temple of Chubu. And when the third day was come and the night thereof, it was as it were revealed to the mind of Chubu that there was dirt upon the head of Shemish. And Chubu spake unto Shemish as speak the gods, moving no lips, nor yet disturbing the silence, saying, There is dirt upon thy head, Shemish. All night long he muttered again and again, There is dirt upon Shemish's head. And when it was dawn, and voices were heard far off, Chubu became exultant with earth's awakening things, and cried out till the sun was high, Dirt, dirt, dirt upon the head of Shemish. And at night he said, so Shemish would be a god. Thus was Shemish confounded. And with Tuesday one came and washed his head with rose water, and he was worshipped again, when they sang, There is also Shemish. And yet was Chugu content, for he said, The head of Shemish has been defiled. And again his head was defiled, it is enough. And one evening... Lo, there was dirt on the head of Chubu also, and the thing was perceived of Shemish. It is not with the gods as it is with men. We are angry with one another and turn from our anger again, but the wrath of the gods is enduring. 
Chubu remembered, and Shemish did not forget. They spake as we do not speak, in silence yet heard of each other, nor were their thoughts as our thoughts. We should not judge them by merely human standards. All night long they spake, and all night long said these words only, Dirty Chubu, Dirty Shemish, Dirty Chubu, Dirty Shemish, all night long. Their wrath had not tired at dawn, and neither had wearied of his accusation. And gradually Chubu came to realize that he was nothing more than the equal of Shemish. All gods are jealous, but this equality with the upstart Shemish, a thing of painted wood a hundred years newer than Chubu, and this worship given to Shemish in Chubu's own temple, were particularly bitter. Chubu was jealous even for a god, and when Tuesday came again, the third day of Shemish's worship, Chubu could bear it no longer. He felt that his anger must be revealed at all costs, and he returned with all the vehemence of his will to achieving a little earthquake. The worshippers had just gone from his temple, when Chubu settled his will to attain this miracle. Now and then his meditations were disturbed by the now familiar dictum, Dirty Chubu. But Chubu willed ferociously, not even stopping to say what he longed to say, and had already said nine hundred times, and presently even these interruptions ceased. They ceased because Shemish had returned to a project that he had never entirely abandoned, the desire to assert himself and exalt himself over Chubu by performing a miracle, and the district being volcanic, he had chosen a little earthquake as the miracle most easily accomplished by a small god. Now an earthquake that is commanded by two gods has double the chance of fulfillment than when it was willed by one, and an incalculably greater chance than when two gods are pulling different ways, as to take the case of older and greater gods, when the sun and the moon pull in the same direction we have the biggest tides. Chubu knew nothing of the theory of tides and was too much occupied with his miracle to notice what Shemish was doing. And suddenly the miracle was an accomplished thing. It was a very local earthquake, for there are other gods than Chubu or even Shemish, and it was only a little one as the gods had willed. But it loosened some monoliths in a colonnade that supported one side of the temple, and the whole of one wall fell in, and the low huts of the people of that city were shaken a little, and some of their doors were jammed so that they would not open. It was enough, and for a moment it seemed that it was all. Neither Chubu nor Shemish commanded that there should be more, but they had set in motion an older law than Chubu, the law of gravity that the colonnade had held back for a hundred years, and the temple of Chubu quivered, and then stood still, swayed once, and was overthrown on the heads of Chubu and Shemish. No one rebuilt it, for nobody dared go near such terrible gods. Some said that Chubu wrought the miracle, but some said Shemish, and thereof schism was born. The weakly amiable, alarmed by the bitterness of rival sects, sought compromise, and said that both had wrought it. But no one guessed the truth that the thing was done in rivalry. 
And a saying arose, and both sects held this belief in common, that whoso toucheth Chubu shall die, or whoso looketh upon Shemesh. That is how Chubu came into my possession when I travelled once beyond the hills of Ting. I found him in the fallen temple of Chubu, with his hands and toes sticking up out of the rubble, lying upon his back. And in that attitude, just as I found him, I keep him to this day on my mantelpiece, as he is less liable to be upset that way. Shemish was broken, so I left him where he was. And there is something so helpless about Chubu with his fat hands stuck up in the air that sometimes I am moved out of compassion to bow down to him and pray, saying, O Chubu, thou that made everything help thy servant. Chubu cannot do much, though once I am sure that at a game of bridge he sent me the ace of trumps after I had not held a card worth having for the whole of the evening. And chance could have done as much as that for me. But I do not tell this to Chubu. The Oval Portrait by Edgar Allan Poe Published 1850 The chateau into which my valet had ventured to make forcible entrance, rather than permit me in my desperately wounded condition, to pass a night in the open air was one of those piles of commingled gloom and grandeur which have so long frowned among the Apennines, not less, in fact, than in the fancy of Mrs. Radcliffe. To all appearance it had been temporarily and very lately abandoned. We established ourselves in one of the smallest and least sumptuously furnished apartments. It lay in a remote turret of the building. Its decorations were rich, yet tattered and antique. Its walls were hung with tapestry and bedecked with manifold and multiform armorial trophies, together with an unusually great number of very spirited modern paintings in frames of rich golden arabesque. In these paintings, which depended from the walls not only in their main surfaces, but in very many nooks which the bizarre architecture of the chateau rendered necessary. In these paintings, my incipient delirium, perhaps, had caused me to take deep interest, so that I bade Pedro to close the heavy shutters of the room, since it was already night, to light the tongues of a tall candelabrum which stood by the head of my bed, and to throw open far and wide the fringed curtains of black velvet which enveloped the bed itself. I wished all this done that I might resign myself, if not to sleep, at least alternately to the contemplation of these pictures, and the perusal of a small volume which had been found upon the pillow and which purported to criticize and describe them. Long, long I read, and devoutly, devotedly I gazed. Rapidly and gloriously the hours flew by, and the deep midnight came. The position of the candelabrum displeased me, and outreaching my hand with difficulty, rather than disturb my slumbering valet, I placed it so as to throw its rays more fully upon the book but the action produced an effect altogether unanticipated. 
the rays of the numerous candles, for there were many, now fell within the niche of the room which had been hitherto thrown into deep shade by one of the bedposts. I thus saw in vivid light a picture all unnoticed before. It was the portrait of a young girl just ripening into womanhood. I glanced at the painting hurriedly, then closed my eyes. Why I did this was not at first apparent, even to my own perception. But while my lids remained thus shut, I ran over in my mind my reason for so shutting them. It was an impulsive movement to gain time for thought, to make sure that my vision had not deceived me, to calm and subdue my fancy for a more sober and more certain gaze. In a very few moments I again looked fixedly at the painting. That I now saw right I could not and would not doubt, for the first flashing of the candles upon that canvas had seemed to dissipate the dreamy stupor which was stealing over my senses, and to startle me at once into waking life. The portrait, I have already said, was that of a young girl. It was a mere head and shoulders, done in what is technically termed a vignette manner, much in the style of the favorite heads of Sully. The arms, the bosom, and even the ends of the radiant hair melted imperceptibly into the vague yet deep shadow which formed the background of the whole. The frame was oval, richly gilded, and filigreed in moresque. As a thing of art, nothing could be more admirable than the painting itself, but it could have been neither the execution of the work nor the immortal beauty of the countenance which had so suddenly and so vehemently moved me. Least of all could it have been that my fancy, shaken from its half-slumber, had mistaken the head for that of a living person. I saw at once that the peculiarities of the design, of the vignetting, and of the frame must have instantly dispelled such idea, must have prevented even its momentary entertainment. Thinking earnestly upon these points, I remained for an hour, perhaps, half sitting, half reclining, with my vision riveted upon the portrait. At last, satisfied with the true secret of its effect, I fell back upon the bed. I had found the spell of the picture in an absolute lifelikeliness of expression, which at first startling, finally confounded, subdued, and appalled me. With deep and reverent awe I replaced the candelabrum to its former position. The cause of my deep agitation being thus shut from view, I sought eagerly the volume which discussed the paintings and their histories. Turning to the number which designated the oval portrait, I there read the vague and quaint words which follow. She was a maiden of rarest beauty, and not more lovely than full of glee. And evil was the hour when she saw and loved and wedded the painter. He, passionate, studious, austere, and having already a bride in his art. She a maiden of rarest beauty, and not more lovely than full of glee, all light 
and smiles and frolicsome as the young fawn, loving and cherishing all things, hating only the art which was her rival, dreading only the palette and brushes and other untoward instruments which deprived her of the countenance of her lover. It was thus a terrible thing for this lady to hear the painter speak of his desire to portray even his young bride. But she was humble and obedient, and sat for many weeks in the dark high turret chamber, where the light dripped upon the pale canvas only from overhead. But he, the painter, took glory in his work, which went on from hour to hour and from day to day. And he was a passionate and wild and moody man, who became lost in reveries, so that he would not see that the light which fell so ghastly in that lone turret withered the health and the spirits of his bride, who pined visibly to all but him. Yet she smiled on and still on uncomplainingly, because she saw that the painter, who had high renown, took such a fervid and burning pleasure in his task, and wrought day and night to depict her who so loved him, yet who grew daily more dispirited and weak. And in sooth, some who beheld the portrait spoke of its resemblance in low words, as of a mighty marvel, and a proof not less of the power of the painter, than of his deep love for her whom he depicted so surpassingly well. But at length, as the labor drew nearer to its conclusion, there admitted none into the turret, for the painter had grown wild with the ardor of his work, and turned his eyes from canvas merely even to regard the countenance of his wife and he would not see that the tints which he spread upon the canvas were drawn from the cheeks of her who sat beside him. And when many weeks had passed, and but little remained to do, save one brush upon the mouth, and one tint upon the eye, the spirit of the lady again flickered up as the flame within the socket of a lamp, and then the brush was given, and then the tint was placed, and for one moment the painter stood entranced before the work which he had wrought. But in the next, while he yet gazed, he grew tremulous and very pallid and aghast, and crying with a loud voice, This is indeed life itself, turned suddenly to regard his beloved. She was dead.